This message first aired on the radio on August 7, 2003. We're taking up the section of the dispensation that deals with Isaac and Jacob. We haven't seen Isaac gone yet, but really uh, the time of Isaac is up. We've been taking up the career of Jacob. And Jacob, of course, is going to be renamed Israel, and we'll see that today. But Jacob is Jacob, and Jacob is Israel. As such, he's a picture for us. He's a twofold picture for us. The first picture he is, is he's a picture of Israel. Of course, he is Israel, and so he's a type of his own history. He's a type of the nation that comes out of his loins. And as a type, we see the twofold aspect of Israel. We see Israel according to the flesh, which the Scripture talks about. And then we see the Israel of God, which is the Israel that is elect of God, which is the Israel, by the way, that pleases God because it believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, that's Jew and Gentile alike. And I know that people forget that. It's a simple principle. It's stated in the book of Hebrews that without faith, it's impossible to be pleasing. We talk about being pleasing to God as the hope of every Christian. The Bible teaches us that we have one hope, one hope of our calling. Now, we're supposed to know our calling, and we're supposed to abide in the calling wherein we're called. And there are many things in the Scripture that refer to our calling. And when we see our calling, we realize that our calling has one hope. In Ephesians chapter 4, we see the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In these days when we see a lot of union going on, when we see a lot of unionizing going on, inside so-called Christian denominations. And I don't like the way that the word Christian has been hijacked away from us, but it has in the world. That which passes as Christian today has nothing to do with our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to end up modifying the term so that we can refer to those of us who believe in the Scriptures and those of us who haven't. But if we do believe in the Scriptures and we do read the Scriptures, we see that departure is the thing that characterizes this hour. Departure is the thing that characterizes the time just prior to the Lord's coming. And so we should see departure around us, and as we do, we should realize, really, and refocus on the fact that we there is still, despite the uh, attempts of men to destroy the truth of God, as they always have done, there is still the truth of God, and there is still the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, which we need to endeavor to keep. One of the aspects of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is one hope of our calling. We only have one hope. And what is our hope? I submit to you that our hope is to be pleasing to our Lord Jesus Christ when we see him. Now, how can we be pleasing? Well, we can only be pleasing one way with God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So by faith... By grace, through faith, we have received Christ as our Savior in the way that we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we should walk in him, Colossians 2, six, And so the way that we'll please him is to continue in faith. Now, when we look at the life of Jacob here, 
we find Jacob to be not only a good picture of the Israel of God, that is the Israel according to the flesh, Jacob, and the Israel of God, which is Israel in his twofold aspect, the twofold aspect of Jacob. But we also see in Jacob, and we can apply him as another type, we see the struggle that we face as Christians, if we're Christians, in Romans chapter 7. Because in Romans chapter 7, we see uh, not only is it typified by Ishmael and Isaac, the one who was after the flesh mocked the one who was after the spirit, but we also see it in Jacob in his really dual aspect, his faithfulness and then his natural way as being the supplanter or the contender. We see these two aspects of Jacob, one as a plain man or man of faith, and the other as this supplanter or this uh, contender, the thing that makes him really unlikable, at least in my view, uh, an unlikable guy, is that old nature. So we see the we see the conflict of the two natures in the person of Jacob. And of course, these things are written for our admonition upon whom the ages have come. So we don't want to overlook that when we see it. Now, we left Jacob. We left Jacob leaving Laban yesterday. And we see that uh, Jacob, when he was with Laban, was outside the land. And now we see Jacob coming back into the land. Now, the land that God has promised to Abraham and then promised to Isaac and also renewed the promise to Jacob, this land that is to be his and the seed who is to be his, that he's to inherit, progeny is to inherit, that he has had the Abrahamic covenant renewed to him. This land at this time, of course, is occupied by the ites. The Amorites is the general term for the occupiers of that land, but there are other ites as descendant there are Hittites and Hivites and Shechemites and uh, other ites. So the ites are in the land. And additionally in the land, besides the ites, the one that has, the one that has Jacob most concerned, really, are not the ites at this point. It is Esau, his brother, that frightens him. Of course, he's afraid of Esau for two reasons. One, he's afraid of Esau because Esau is Esau. And Esau's a ferocious kind of guy, and Esau is a guy who did commit himself to kill his brother, who last time Jacob saw him was purposing in his heart to murder him. And you remember that there are two reasons that Jacob was sent out of the land. One was to secret him and protect him from his brother Esau, who was going to kill him. And the other reason was to find a wife so that he would not, like Esau, end up with two wives from the Hittites. And then, of course, Esau trying to please his parents and trying to find some kind of change of mind on Isaac's part so he could get blessed, went out and picked up an Ishmaelite wife, which I'm sure didn't go very far in making his parents happy either. Meanwhile, Jacob was still a Jacob. He had supplanted Esau and seemed to have gotten away with it. He then took on a greater Jacob than himself. He went to out Jacob Laban, but Laban, Laban, Jacob. You remember we we saw that. And it happened that over the course of time, he stayed 20 years with his brother-in-law Laban. Laban changed his wages numerous times. He tricked him 
with a wife. He tricked him to take two wives instead of one. And then we saw that Jacob served Laban for another six years after 14 years for paying for those two wives. He served him another six years in order to acquire some cattle. And then it came about that the Lord said to Jacob, well, two things happened. First thing, he heard the sons of Laban say, and this is Genesis 31, verse 1, hear the words of Laban's son saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and of that which was our father's has he gotten all this glory or all this wealth. And, of course, Jacob did become enriched uh, through the way that he organized himself around Laban's cattle and herds, the way he kept them for six years. He did become very wealthy. And as it said, the feebler cattle were Laban's and the stronger were Jacob's. Jacob seemed to be more precocious in the way that he developed the cattle. He paid attention to their breeding. Looks like the sons of Laban didn't. And now they're mad at him because he's got the better herd than Laban. Laban's got the weak herd. Jacob has the strong herd. They're more robust. They conceive better, so forth. And Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban, and behold, it was not toward him as before. Scripture is interesting in that it talks about countenance. I have a friend who is observant of people's countenances, and I think that's a biblical thing. You can tell when someone is ill-disposed toward you, certainly. In fact, I think telling when someone's ill-disposed toward you is much easier than telling when they're well-disposed toward you. Their countenance changes, and God has made us such that our heart shows on our faces. And the reason he's done that is because we're so perverse that we can become good at disguising with our words the things that are on our heart, although ultimately, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But also out of the abundance of the heart, the face looks. And you remember that Cain had a fallen countenance. And now here, Jacob notices that Laban's face toward him is not as it once was. And when that happens, of course, oftentimes it's impossible to change that disposition. And so Jacob left Laban, and you recall that his wife Rachel stole the household gods of Laban. And we find out something a little bit about Laban, by the way. Uh, Laban not only was a character like Jacob, but worse than Jacob, he appears to have had no spiritual life. Well, his he did have a spiritual life. He had a bad quality spiritual life. He had a spiritual life where he turned to idols. The actual word of what Rachel took, the word is teraphim. That has to do with images of the earth. They're earthly images of heavenly things. In fact, they're in the form of a man. Later in the scripture, we'll see them in the form of a man because uh, Michael, David's wife, uses one to simulate David in his bed. But I digress a bit. So Rachel took images and hid them in the furnishings, and Laban, missing his gods, runs down Jacob and finds him. And Jacob doesn't even know his wife has hid them. And that's an interesting picture of Israel, by the way, who, when they came out of Egypt, hid gods from Egypt, took the false gods of Egypt with them, and turned to them, even as God was giving his word. And Israel even took the 
false gods from around them while they were in the wilderness. We'll see that when we see Achan, for example, taking the Babylonian garment and gold gods. And of course, Israel constantly turned to the gods of the Gentiles around them, and for that reason, failed in their attempt and failed in their role to deliver the word of God to the Gentiles, but instead took the lie that uh, Nimrod got going from the Gentiles into themselves, thus underlying the principle that we know evil spreads and good does not. And, of course, I get ahead now into Israel's failure, but we see the seeds of Israel's failure in this guy Jacob and in the kind of wife that he picked, Rachel, who grabbed up the gods and so forth. Now, what am I saying? I'm not saying that Jacob was not a saved man. I do not say Jacob was not a believing man. I say that he is a evidence of the struggle of the two natures of the believing man. I also did not say that Rachel is not a saved woman. That is not the subject of the scripture whatsoever, but she's trouble, and she's trouble because she's nitrogen to Jacob's glycerin, or vice versa. Well, so now Jacob gets away from Laban. God warned Laban not to mess with him. He makes an agreement of peace with Laban, and he moves on his way. And so Jacob is in the position of believing that he has now overcome Esau, and he has now overcome Laban, albeit not without great difficulties. And this is going to be a big problem for our man Jacob, because he is overcoming these, not on the basis of faith, but according to the flesh. And friends, uh, the problem with sin is it has torment, and it brings about fear. And so Jacob is living a life of fear. He was afraid of Laban. Now he's on his way and back into the land, and the first thing that happens is he hears about Esau, and the Bible tells us Jacob was greatly afraid, Genesis 32, 7, and distressed. And fear has torment, and that's this tormented man, Jacob. And let me tell you, my Christian friend, 2 Timothy 1, 7 said, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and sound mind. And we don't have to live like Jacob in fear due to his behavior, understanding and knowing his own guilt all the time about his behavior. We can live a life of faith cleansed by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll look at, at that when we come back. So we're back to the place of looking at Jacob. And we're going to see him renamed Israel. He's in fear. Jacob's in fear. He has decided to divide his family in half. He thinks, it looks like I'm going to have to sacrifice half of my family uh, when Esau comes and attacks me. He'll attack one half, and the other half will get away. And then Jacob prays to God. And it's interesting that Jacob only prays to God here when he's come to an end of utilizing his means and his cunning. And friend of mine, if God has given you great means and great ability, then you can also be in a position of great jeopardy because of it. And not that God put you in jeopardy, but you can turn to your own strength and your own capability 
instead of turning to God. And there's no reason that you should do that. There's no reason to wait until you're at an end of your own devices to turn to God. You can turn to God early. You can turn to God first. But the problem with having ability and the problem with having means is that it can lead us to forget God. And that's why David prayed to God. He said, don't make me so wealthy that I'll forget you, but don't make me so poor that I'll be overwhelmingly discouraged and despise you. Give me that which is convenient for me. Well, God has made you for himself, and God has made you with your abilities and with your problems. And one of the things we like to do about ourselves is we like to thank God for our abilities And then we like to wonder why it is that we have our inabilities or our problems. And in fact, it is in our inability and it is in our area of weakness where God is made strong and where we find God's strength. And so God has now brought Jacob to an end of himself. And it's a long end. It took 20 years. And he turns and he said, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said to me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast shown unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children." Thou sayest, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he rehearses to God, God's promises to him. Nothing the matter with that. This is a wonderful prayer of Jacob. We see here that he is a man of faith. It may take him a while to get there, but he is a man of faith. And it says he lodged there that same night. And now in that evening, we have this statement. I'm going to skip ahead and read at verse 24. Actually, what happens is he sends his wives and his two wives and their servants and his 11 sons, and he goes over across a ford, across a body of water, and then he sends over all of his cattle, all of his people that are with him. And then we have here verse 24 of Genesis 32, and Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And so it's a very interesting uh, statement. Jacob, when he was by himself in the night, begins to wrestle a man, it says. And and he wrestles with him until the breaking of the day. And when he, that is God, and the man here is really, it's the Lord that he's wrestling. This man is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and Jacob wrestles with him. And it says when the man, he saw that he prevailed not against Jacob. He touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with Jacob. And so now here, friends, is a picture. This is a theophany. This is an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself to Jacob in the form of a man. This is not the first time this happened. This happened also with Abraham when the Lord came to him in the plains of Mamre and stayed with him while the two other men who were angels went to go seize Lot. And here this man who is the Lord says, Let me go for the day breaks. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. 
And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Now, we have to take this apart a little bit. Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed Jacob there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Now, this word Peniel means I have seen God's face. And so Jacob knew who it was he had been wrestling and Jacob was left with a hip out of joint. And this is the problem with the flesh. This is the problem with the flesh, is that we just won't stop. We just employ it constantly. Jacob is a guy who contended with everybody, and he prevailed. And he now is even contending with God. And he prevailed with men, but he certainly didn't prevail with God. Some read this passage that says he even prevailed with God. Well, it wasn't God that ended up with the hip out of joint. It wasn't the Lord Jesus Christ. His hip's not out of joint. It is Jacob's hip that is out of joint. Uh, God leaves Jacob with a permanent recollection that he did not prevail with God. And so here's a guy who contended. Uh, he's the contender. He contends with men, but when it comes time to contend with God, he fails. And let me tell you that you don't need to contend with God. Sometimes we oppose ourselves. We're our own worst enemies. Frequently that's the case. In fact, maybe in every case that's the case, where we even find ourselves fighting against God, or as they say, haply. I'm thinking now of the words of uh, Gamaliel, who was, by the way, a pretty weak guy, but he said, don't go too far forward in contending these men. Happily, you might find yourself contending against God. Well, that's exactly what Israel found themselves doing. Here is Jacob as a picture of Israel, who fought God himself and lost as they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here is the lameness of Jacob, which he'll have for the rest of his life, and he realizes now what happened. He saw God face to face. His life was preserved, but his entire well-being was affected. And at this point, Jacob now is going to limp and lean on his staff. It says in verse 31, As he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted or limped upon his thigh. And from here on out, Jacob is going to walk with a limp, and Jacob is going to lean on his staff. Now it says in verse 32, Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew, or in the ligament of the hip joint, and it shrank. Now, that is how it is for the spiritual man. The spiritual man does not lean on his own understanding, but in all his ways acknowledges the Lord. And let me say that trusting in the Lord with all your heart and leaning not on your own understanding, leaning not on your own abilities, this serves us very well. And they that trust in the Lord will never be ashamed. And here Jacob learns really just in time. God comes to him just in time so that he will not be ashamed and so that he will live a life of grace instead of a life of fear. My fearful friend, won't you live a life of faith instead and see the grace of God? Behold, 
the grace of God in your life instead of living in constant fear and according to your own means. Genesis 33 reads this way, begins this way, And Jacob lifted up his eyes, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men. So all of his means of dividing his family, all of his strategies about Esau here, let me tell you, they didn't preserve him one bit. What preserves Jacob is God Almighty. And oh, that we would learn that. Oh, that we would learn that our preservation and our security does not lie in our own means and in our own arrangements, but in God, who looks ahead and has grace for us. That's a very difficult lesson. I don't say it's ever learned in a permanent way. It's certainly not learned permanently by Jacob, but it's learned by him for this now as Esau comes. Well, I won't go through all the details of Esau approaching Jacob, but Esau comes to Jacob and we see great grace here. In fact, Esau runs to meet Jacob and embraces him and falls on his neck and weeps on his neck. And here uh, Jacob tells Esau, all these children God has graciously given me. And, and he says, here I have a gift for you, which he had lined out for Esau. And Esau said, no, I don't need a gift. But Jacob says, no, I've been prospered. You keep it. And they get on well. And when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And that's what we see here. God is able even to make enemies at peace with the man who pleases the Lord. It isn't the case that it's always that way. But as much as in you is, live peaceably with all men. That's what the Scripture says. As much as we are able to do so in a good conscience. So here, his great fears of what Esau would do to him, they're completely allayed, and Esau says, let's go to my place, come on up, let's hurry up and go up to Mount Seir, where I stay, and that's the way it is with Esau, he's a man of great means, he's a man of ability, and uh, interesting thing, Jacob says, no, I've got tender ones, I can't be in a hurry, I'll lead on softly according as the cattle it goes, uh, you go on ahead. And now the problem is that Jacob, in his exultation, that his fears of Esau now have subsided, and in the great peace that he's given, he fails to turn to the Lord. And somehow when we're fearful and we see the consequences of our sin coming upon us, in those days we turn to the Lord, and the Lord rescues us, and then what happens is we the Lord rescues us, and we have great grace, and we rejoice in it, and we don't turn to the Lord. Now we just go back and do the old things we always do, and that's what Jacob did. He just did the thing he always did. Jacob is Jacob, and he Jacob's around here, and it says he journeys to Succoth and builds a house and makes booze for his cattle. Therefore the name is Sukoth, named Booth. That's what the word Booth means, so the Feast of Sukoth, the Feast of Booths. He's making sheds for his cattle. He builds a house. What's he doing building a house? This is a guy supposed to live in tents and move about in the land. He builds a house, and he comes to Shalem, which is a city in Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. When he came from Padamaran, he pitched his tent before the city. He bought a parcel of the field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. What's he doing buying this land, making himself at home amongst those that ultimately he'll have to drive out? 
why is he doing this? And then he builds an altar there and calls it El Elohe Israel. But let me tell you something. God didn't tell him to put an altar here. This is no place for an altar. Why don't you go to the house of God, to Bethel, and put your altar there? No, he's going to hang around here among the Shechemites and make his home there, almost like Lot here. The guy's almost acting, well, he is. He's acting certainly more like Lot than he is like Abraham. And then we have Genesis 34, and uh, this is another picture here. But what happens, we'll slide over it a bit quickly, but what happens to him here, he's got his children, he's settled in among the Shechemites, and this is what happens when you settle into the world. When he settled in amongst the Shechemites, what happens is that when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, saw Dinah, the daughter of Lee, which he bare unto Jacob, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And isn't that exactly what happens? You live in the world, and you get the world result. And here's the prince now, Shechem, the prince of Hamor, the head man. He sees Dinah, takes her, and lies with her. Now, is this a rape? Well, he defiles her. We don't know if it's a rape here or not. But let me tell you what it is, is it's something that's greatly offensive to her 11 brothers. And now this guy, Shechem, has got 11 enemies, plus Jacob, and there's trouble here. And that's what happens when you're in the world. Whatever it is, it's trouble. It's going to be trouble. And Jacob heard, it says in verse 5, that he, that is, that Shechem of Hamor, defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his cattle of the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to commune with him. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had he had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. So here we find now the first reference to Israel as a nation or as a group. Well, it's not a nation yet, but as a group. Here they are all now grouped together, and they're sure about one thing, and that is, Dinah is not going to marry Shechem. Uh, she's not going to marry a Hivite. That's not going to happen in their family. And now we find out that these sons certainly are like their father Jacob. They're just little Jacobs. There can be no doubt about that. And they're going to act just like Jacob does. They're going to take up their means, and they're going to deal with these Shechemites in a sore, sore way. And so... We see here that two of them, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly. Well, what they do, we'll have to look at this in a little more detail in a minute, because what they do is they trick these, these, these uh, Shechemites. I got ahead of myself here, and part of the reason I get ahead of myself is I get nervous about the clock, the way it moves and so forth, and because these announcements just come in whenever they're scheduled to come in, and I'm still learning about this radio business. But I failed to set this up properly because we see the sons of Israel, and two of them are going to lead in the effort, but they're all this way. They're all just little Jacobs. 
here's the plan that they have. Haymore comes in really an honorable kind of way, certainly an honorable way for a Hivite. He comes to the brothers and father, to Jacob and his sons, and he communed with them. Verse 8 says, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. I pray you give her him to wife. And make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you, and you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein, and get you possessions therein. So now here we have this proposal. This is a proposal of a treaty. This is let's our people, my people will be your people, your people will be our people. Let's intermarry and be one people. Of course, this is totally unacceptable. This is absolutely unacceptable to the children of Israel. This is absolutely unacceptable to Jacob. They should just say so. They should just say, no, that's not what we're about. This isn't going to happen. We're not interested in this. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father deceitfully and said, because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach to us. So here now they say, Well, we've got just one little problem with your proposal. We're all in favor of it. Sounds good. But you guys aren't circumcised, and we, we're circumcised. Now, I don't know how they explained to them what circumcision was. These are a bunch of old boys. I suppose they figured it out. But they're now plotting against these Hivites these Hivites, and that's not what they're supposed to do. They're not commissioned to do anything to the Hivites. They're just supposed to dwell in the land peacefully with those around them. The wickedness of the Amorites is not full, and God still has grace for these Hivites. And if anything, they should explain to the Hivites how it is that God gave them circumcision, why it is God gave them circumcision, and if a fight ensues from that, well, there it is. But what they're really bent on here, and these are little Jacobs, remember, they're bent now on vengeance. And this all started because Jacob was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so it's his fault, and his sons are just like him. So here's what they tell him. Say, you guys, listen, here's the deal. If all the males of you Shechemites, if all of you males will get circumcised, then we'll give our daughters to you, and we'll take your daughters for us, and we'll become one people. That's a total lie, total deceit, but it says, their words pleased Hamor and Shechem Hamor's son. And the young man deferred not to do the thing because he had delight in Jacob's daughter, and he was more honorable than all the house of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came out of the gate of their city and communed with the men of their city and said, These men are peaceable with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade therein. For the land, behold, it's large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us for wives and give them our daughters. And in short, all the men of Shechem agreed to be circumcised. And it came to pass, verse 25, on the third day when they were sore, of course, grown men so getting circumcised, they're not going to be able to fight for a while. So on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, 
took each man his sword, came upon the city boldly, and slew all the males. And they slew Hamor and Shechem with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house, and went out. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain, and spoiled the city, because they had defiled their sister. And so here we see now what it is to be a son of Jacob, instead of a child of Israel. These now are brothers, sons according to the flesh, and what do they do? They murder all the men of the city. They murder every one of them, and not only that, but they come and they steal all their things. They spoil and take all of their wealth. It says, And all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. Verse 30, And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me. I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And so here we find that living in the world, even if you're a religious type, even though Jacob decided I'll set up this altar here, God will bless me for whatever it is I do, even though he misunderstands totally the way of faith. And what is the way of faith? The way of faith is not doing what you want and asking God to bless it. That's unhappily what so many of us do. Unhappily, the way of faith comes to be we do what we want and then we ask for the Lord's blessing upon it. What we fail to do is let the Lord tell us where to go and go do that. So God does bring a word now to Jacob in Genesis 35. God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and there make an altar to God, the God that appeared to thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said to his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. Arise, we'll go up to Bethel. So what did these fellows do? Well, we know what their mother did, at least the mother of Joseph did. We know what Rachel did. She took her father's teraphim and hid them, and that now has multiplied down to these sons who raid the Hivite spoils and take to themselves all their false gods, all their strange gods, all their earrings, all their things of great wealth, and it says that Jacob took them and hid them under the oak, which was by Shechem. And let me just say this. This tendency to live in the world only leads to the honoring of the gods that are in the world. And the Scripture tells the believer today, as he really told the believers of every day, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For we know that we're of God the whole world lies in the evil one. You be careful, my Christian brother, my Christian sister, what you desire. You desire the things of the world. You desire the big new house. You desire the new car. You desire the spoils of this world, the bank accounts, the savings accounts, the retirement plans, the college degrees, the discounted drugs we were hearing last hour. You want all the things of the world. And yet, none of these things will secure you your safety, your well-being, and certainly none of these will secure to you the blessings that you desire for your children. And there are lessons plenty here. We don't learn them. That's the story of the Scripture, is we never learn them. I want to just say uh, another thing about what happens here with Jacob. As he's now going to Bethel, where God tells him to go, 
it tells us that the enemies, it says, and they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. Let me say this. God preserves the righteous. God preserves his own. It is vain for us to rely upon the arm of the flesh. I believe in defending a nation. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I believe in the legal, lawful use, for example, of armed conflict. I believe in self-defense. I believe that you're free to use force in self-defense. But I do not think that any nation or any group of people should put their faith in their ability to wage war. I do not think that that is a safe thing. But it is safe to put your faith in God Almighty, who is able to preserve, here from their enemies, able to preserve Jacob and his small group from whole cities that hate them, because the terror of God was upon the cities. I was meditating on this earlier today, and I thought, how much of the security that we've enjoyed in America is due to the fact that God has just put fear into the hearts of those around us so that they do not exercise and act upon their hatred for us. Let me assure you of something. The hatred for us is immense. I've traveled around the world a bit, and there's quite a bit of hatred just for someone being an American. But I don't really care to speak about that in a national sense. What I really want to speak about is the enmity that is in the world against the Christian My Christian friend, the world loves its own. It hates you. You cannot make a treaty with the world. But despite the fact that the world hates you and that the world desires, and our spiritual enemy, and not just the world, we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil, all three of our enemies, yes, our own flesh uh, is our enemy. We oppose ourselves. The world hates us. Our spiritual enemy, the devil, he hates us. He seeks to devour us to destroy us. He's a murderer from the beginning. He's still a murderer. He would kill us if he could. The world would destroy us if they could. We would destroy ourselves without the grace of God, and yet God preserves us. And God is able to preserve you, my Christian friend, if you'll follow him in faith. We ought not to fear. We ought not to live in fear. We ought to live in faith. And the faithful man is not one who never has fear, The faithful man is one who acts on the word of God in the face of his fear, who understands that God didn't give us the spirit of fear. When we have it, it's not from God. God gives to us instead the spirit of love, of power to overcome sin, and of a sound mind. And so they journey to Bethel, and here as they're going to Bethel, it says, God now speaks to Jacob. It says in verse 10 of Genesis 35, God says to Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. Now this is a rehearsal. This is a second rehearsal of the wonderful promise to Abraham that is now confirmed again to Jacob. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee. Kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed after thee will I give the land. And God went up from him in the place where he talked with him, 
And Jacob set up an altar in the place where he talked with him, even a pillar of stone, and poured a drink offering there on, and poured oil thereon. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him Bethel, or the house of God. And you see that Jacob is now learning that the house of God is the place of fellowship with God. You know, we, we talk about the church, which is his body, being the house of God, the pillar and support of the truth. The house of God is not a location. The house of God is not a building. The house of God are God's called-out people in fellowship with God himself. The house of God is the place where God speaks. The house of God is not somewhere physically organized on earth, but is God's people and God speaking to his people and is a place of fellowship with God. And so they journeyed from Bethel, and there was a little way to come to Ephrath, and Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass that when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, you will have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave, and this is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And so we see now here that Rachel dies in Bethlehem. Here we see a picture of the Lord's birth as she dies in the house of bread, Bethlehem, where the Lord Jesus Christ was born. And she calls his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. She calls him Ben-Oni, the son of my sorrow, as she in travail dies. And her husband calls him Benjamin, which is the son of my right hand. And we pause here toward the end of our study to recollect who the son of God's right hand is and who the man of sorrows is. Here, Rachel saying, He's the son of my sorrow, he's the son of my travail, and she dies. And in so doing, uh, here's Benjamin, the son of sorrow, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who is the son, the right hand of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a good place to stop. We'll talk to you tomorrow.